What's up, folks? Welcome to the Whoop Podcast. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, the founder and CEO of Whoop, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. We build technology across hardware and software and analytics to really understand you. So that includes things like sleep and recovery and strain. More recently, a statistic called respiratory rate that we found can be predictive of COVID-19. Encourage you to check out some earlier podcasts in which we talk about respiratory rate and COVID-19. We're going to get into our amazing guest this week in just a second. Uh, first, I want to remind you that you can get 15% off a WHOOP membership if you use the code Will Ahmed. That's W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D. We had an amazing week last week. We announced a partnership with G42 Healthcare to become the first wearable to be used in a phase three COVID-19 vaccine trial. Yes, I don't think there's anything more important right now than a phase three COVID-19 vaccine trial. COVID-19 vaccines are going to hopefully save a lot of lives, and we are proud at WHOOP to be a part of this and, and to help look at physiological data before, during, and after uh, a phase three trial and make sure that baseline data stays stable. And really, I think it's the future of medicine to use health monitoring to understand deviations in your body, you know, during vaccines, drugs, and other therapies. So anyway, if you want to learn more about that partnership, you can check it out at the locker. That's whoop.com slash locker. All right. Now our guest, Dr. Bob Arnott. Fascinating guy, former chief medical correspondent for both CBS and NBC News, the former chief foreign correspondent for NBC. He's a pilot. He's a world champion paddleboarder, a skier, an author, really a renaissance man. I mean, Dr. Bob does it all. And at age 72, he's got the whoop data of a 25-year-old. And we talk a lot about that. We talk about his philosophy on life health, fitness. He just wrote this new book, Flip the Youth Switch, which is out now. And it's all about, folks, heart rate variability. It's all about health. It's about heart rate variability. Uh, I read the book. I think it's awesome. Uh, and so I encourage everyone to check it out. Well, without further ado, here is Dr. Bob Arnott. Dr. Bob Arnott, welcome back to the Whoop Podcast. Hey, listen, you have no idea how excited I am. This summer, last summer, I, I listened to every single podcast, all of them. So I'm like uh, a Will podcast junkie. Wow, I'm flattered. This device, you know, a lot of other people are saying that it's gamified, and it is. I have joined this group called Whoop Hardos. So <laughs> every single morning, I think there's some buddies of yours, actually. Every single morning I get up. And my seven-year-old walks into the room and he wants to know what my score is today, which is not very good. So you I got a 37%, I can see. I did heavy intervals there. But he goes and he wants to know what my ranking is among Wupardos. There's some good young players on there. Yeah. And so the thing is, is that this winter, we start doing this. I beat them every single day because I'm doing <laughs> So every day I'm like 21. And these guys, they get competitive, right? Of they course. go out there, they start sleeping, and they start eating right, and they start exercising. And now these guys, I mean, I, sometimes I can't even make it into the top four. It's killing me. So the Whoop Hardos team, 
that's uh, for everyone looking for a new team to join, check out the Woo Pardos team. And you can try to beat, you can try to beat Dr. Bob. They are, it is interesting, though, is how much they have upped their game. And the other part of it is that, is, you know, I'm a huge believer in Whoop in general, but also as a marker of biological age. And with this coronavirus epidemic, your biological age is everything. You know, they, in one of the White House briefings, they, Deborah Burks was talking about how you could be, you know, 60 or 70 or 80. And if you had a black biological age, which would mean it was 10 or 20 years later, you were finished, right? And that's all they found in London. Everybody on event over a certain age had that very bad biological age. So with Whoop, using HRV as a marker, you can bring your biological age down by down, bit by bit. So the significance of Whoop Hardos is they're all 25 years old, and I'm like late 20s. Well, how, how old are you actually? Let's tell the audience because you part of the magic is that you're competing with 20-year-olds and you're how old? 72. Isn't that amazing? Well, what's amazing about it though is, you know, so I started out when, you know, the story is that so a year ago, I get back from the World uh, Cross-Country Ski Championships in Norway after competing there and then climbing Norway's highest mountain with their lead guide and I come back and I'm fried. So I call this coach and I said, I need a coach. Why do you need a coach? Because I'm fried. I need a recovery. He goes, buy a whoop. So, <laughs> Good advice, honestly. So I did. I bought the whoop. And, you know, lo and behold, I'm like red every day for like, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks. And so obviously, I completely changed my training. And I had HRV like 18, 20, which was, you know, like my age, like 72. I actually got up. So I was 130. I was the equivalent of my seven-year-old. You know? <laughs> what I love about it is, you know, when you look at metrics, look at all the other metrics in terms of, you know, real hard endpoints like biological age. I mean, like CRP, six weeks, cholesterol, two and a half weeks, blood pressure, three weeks or so. This is day to day. So in one day, you can see an improvement. In a week, you can see a big improvement. And what I love about it is that, again, you, you know, people are so motivated, they're so competitive that they want to see these scores change. Uh, and they do. So I ended up 130, which is the equivalent of like a, a, a seven-year-old. And, you know, my fiance always thought that was true mentally, but now it's actually true physically. Well, you've written a phenomenal book, which is all about this, Flip the Youth Switch. Uh, I devoured it. I loved it. And I think a big theme right off the top of the book is this importance of, you know, age just being a number and you actually have a real biological health as well, physiological health as well. And you talk about how heart rate variability is so core to this understanding of your physiological health. Well, you know, the thing, Will, is, is there is no greater dream in life than to perpetually live the life of a 25-year-old. <laughs> Especially, you know, you're older, you're wiser, hopefully you're, you know, you're richer and, you know, know more and you're smarter and whatnot. But to biologically be 25, and honestly, to be part of who part of us, 25-year-olds, you know, ex-Ivy uh, League uh, athletes, athletes, yeah. Athletes is phenomenal, you know. So it really is, a, it's a tremendous dream come true. And, you know, heart rate variability, when I first looked at this, you draw my, drew my attention to it. And, you know, look, at I'm a, I'm a scientist. I work, you know, with one of the best hospitals in the world. And, you know, I'm skeptical about it. I read the literature and I kind of get into a little bit. And then I saw that HRV has, of course, nothing to do with the heart, the heart health. It has to do with what we call inflammation which is that when you're young, you know, you're balanced. So your HRV is a very good high score because again, what HRV shows is 
is how kind of springy your overall automatic nervous system is. You know, you rest and you recover because it's very elastic, very lively, or is it kind of like dead? And when you look at heart rate variabilities, you know, here's the distance between two heartbeats. Is it like, you know, boom, 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 like cutting sausages, there's like boom, 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 boom. With that variability, it turns out, it's the best overall marker of biological age. And as you've also educated the world, it's the best overall marker of, uh, of somebody's recovery. If you are able to get a great HRV, you've really recovered. So it's a tremendous motivator. And it's exciting. It's actually about 25 years ago or more called Turning Back the Clock. Arnold Schwarzenegger actually wrote a, a blurb for the cover of it. And it really is a dream come true. I have been able to live, live the life of a 25-year-old. And thanks to Whoop, and again, and of course, we're not on video here, but you can see, look at Talk yeah. about a loyalist. I have two whoops on anyone time because I never want to lose the data. <laughs> that, you're, you're a unique whoop member in that you actually will wear two whoop straps to ensure that nothing goes wrong with your Nothing data. gets lost. Not, not yeah. one heartbeat. Well, uh, I love the book. And, you know, it obviously reinforced a lot of things that, that we believe here at, at Whoop. Why don't you talk a little bit about um, this actual switch that you refer to, this idea that your body is is sort of constantly oscillating between fight or flight and rest and recovery. So, you know, let's look at it. That is, we have obviously a uh, voluntary nervous system. I move my fingers, my head, I run or whatever. We have this automatic nervous system and we kind of don't really work control it. We don't say heart go fast, heart go slow. It's not like, you know, Siri, make my heart go fast, right? Yeah. And so it, it's a delicate balance. And as you say, you have two different settings. So you have one which they call fight or flight. And the idea was that in the old days, you know, a lion came up or a leopard came up and you suddenly had to fight it or you had to flee and you needed every last ounce of energy. So you had stress hormones in the health. You had adrenaline in the health. You know, your eyes change. You know, you're this, the hair on your skin kind of like picked up. Uh, and all of those things gave you the energy to run away or fight that line. But now, unfortunately, you're stuck in traffic and somebody cuts you off. There's no line to kill. All you can do is sit on that horn or get frustrated. And so you have the other part of the parasympathetic. And what that does is it is, as you say, rest and recovery. So it's a chance to rebuild muscle. It's a time for your brain to kind of recover. It's a chance for your body to kind of look across its great kind of breath and say, you know, I need some more protein. I need to be able to repair that. I need some more fuel in here. You know, you've got to settle the whole thing down. And as you know, in your 20s, it's a very nice sort of mix. So you've got some inflammation. You, you, you go out there and you, you party and you hammer or you do an athletic contest. You come back, you kick back, you relax. But as we age, you have more and more of just the sympathetic drive. And that sympathetic drive, to be clear, is a lower and lower HRV. Now, just to take a, a moment aside, a lot of people, when they think of HRV as a scale, right, they won't know what's good and bad, but low is bad, good is high. And so if you're low, it means you have what we term inflammation. As we know, the primary driver of disease and aging is inflammation. Clearly, you may have genetics or other things going on, but it's the one controllable thing. And Maurizio Favre, who is now the chair of psychiatry at Harvard, took me apart a couple of years ago at the Harvard Club and said, Bob, look at the average American is an inflammatory mess inside. And there's no better delimiter than the inflammation. 
And no better measure of that than HRV with a whoop, be able to see that on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'll give you an example. So I do between uh, two and 6,000 feet every morning. I climb up my skis and ski down during the winter. You know, it's exhilarating and, and exhausting. But one day I had this terrible pain. It was like I shot in the abdomen. So I tried to exercise it out. I couldn't. Uh, I looked at my whoop score and it was like red, bright red. And I go to my doctor, I don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong. So I go to the emergency room. They do a CT scan and they go, I don't know. Well, you can't tell what it is, but it's bad. <laughs> so I get in my truck and I go a million miles an hour down to Dartmouth with my surgeon was. I said, look at He goes, okay, Bob, you get two choices. Choice A is we keep you in the hospital a couple of days and put an IV and I go, B, <laughs> which was, let's operate. So the guy operates. I complete intestinal obstruction, right? So the, the warning sign was my whoop told me something was going on over the previous week because I had all yellow scores. And it suddenly goes red. So on the basis of that, I went down, had the operation. The, the guy comes in with a big smile on his face in the recovery and goes, Bob, you can ski tomorrow. Now, most people with an intestinal obstruction wait too long. They have a colostomy. They're in a hospital for a couple of weeks. It's a mess. So thanks to WHOOP as an early warning system, I knew and was able to, uh, to take decisive action. So I love it as an early warning system. And I know with corona, you know, you've looked at Respiratory rate is a way of determining whether someone's sort of headed down the road is the very earliest sign of having a, you know, a, a SARS-CoV-2 infection. So it's, uh, I don't think I open or close the conversation without saying whoop. People are. <laughs> <laughs> you, you are truly a, a, a true fan, I have to say, in the best. And, and you're coming at it from such a place of authenticity because of the amazing, amazing career you've had, especially uh, not just as a you know high performing personality and and author and scientist, but also as uh, as someone who's a real athletic animal. I mean, you know, you're shot out of a rocket, Bob. You're you're <laughs> you're about to go up a mountain right after this call. Now, what you're referring to is it's a it's been a fascinating phenomenon for us, which is this idea of early detection, because we have heard so many examples, like the one you just described of someone out of the blue getting their first red recovery and having something really up with their body. And, you know, for us, it's a thing that we have to be, we have to be careful to market, market around because, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to overstate what, what a red recovery might be, but we have so many examples of people saying my data was off and I went to a doctor and lo and behold, it was blank. Anyway, it's obvious that this is the direction that whoop is going and wearable technology should go which is to help people understand things about their bodies before they feel them. I was just on a call with a uh, venture capitalist and with a very cool company that does telemedicine. And what I think is happening with wearables is you're completely changing the face of medicine. Let me take asthma as an example. So in the old days, you wait until you're like, you know, you're just struggling, wheezing, you run to the emergency room and you end up a couple of days in the ICU. But now, you know, I, I always... I did 10,000 hours as a director of a 137 hospital emergency medicine group. And every time I send a patient out, I go, this, this is like, you know, sending somebody to space without any monitors. What am I doing? It's like the craziest thing in the world. You know, I mean, they could lurch and crash out of control. It's like a driverless car sending somebody home. So what I love about the wearables is that now you can track it. You, you have this red warning as an example. You have the increase in respiratory rate. So how medicine is changing is that increasingly you're going to have a telemedicine appointment. You say, well, the doctor can't examine me. Well, you get better than the exam. You have 
minute by minute, second by second data, you know, day after day, year after year. So the doctor's going to go, I don't know, I think there's something wrong here. So to take asthma as an example, what would happen is you couldn't breathe out as fast, called your FEV1. So there's now a home device for that. You'd find that you're not as active. So the cell phones now will say you're not tracking as much, you're not going as fast, you're not uh, talking as quickly, as long, you're not making as many phone calls, your fever is going up. There are devices that now show whether or not you're taking too many inhalations. So you have all those coming together and using the deep learning system. And I tell everybody, nobody has done a better job with deep learning and data than Whoop. We have a phenomenal team on that front, led by John and Emily. They do a phenomenal job. Well, I had a great chance to sit down with Emily for a couple hours. And what a superstar she is. It's, it's amazing how good this is. So what is changing now is that you know, these devices are not taking the place of doctors. But what they're doing is they're working as an assist. They're basically wanting to warn you. So it could be in an ICU where you have so much data you can't possibly keep up with it. But also with the rest of us, you know, I, th- I read the other day that the, the human body has a data exhaust where it puts out like something like 2.2 gigabytes a day, potentially, you know, all the biological information. So as you capture more and more, more of that information, with deep learning, you're going to have all kinds of warning systems. And it will change the face of medicine. Now, as an example, there's a very prominent school, which I won't mention by name. They invested $10 million in a project that used these wearables to detect disease. And they stopped doing it. The reason why? It was so good. They lost hospital admissions and they lost the business because, you know, it detected the disease early and they were able to intervene so soon. So unquestionably, you know, now with COVID, you can do all these telemedicine appointments. With the addition of the wearable device, it's going to completely change the face of medicine. So we're able to intercept far, far earlier. As another example, last summer, I had a, a race. Uh, I did this stand-up surfing race. and It was over in Saranac Lake. And I had been yellow all week long. And I said to myself, I don't think this is a good idea. And I just kind of didn't figure it out. So I went and I raced. And three hours later, I felt like. Death. I went to the emergency room that night and had this giant right lower lobe pneumonia. So I spent the night in the emergency room and the next night in the emergency room and the next night in the emergency room. So if I paid a little closer attention to my, my whoop and gotten out of the yellow into the green, I probably would have avoided it. But you know what's so interesting to me, Will, is that you know, when you take a look at older athletes, and older athletes really now means 25 or older. You know, the average 25-year-old is just destroying their body. Uh, my seven-year-old, when he looks at our group's scores, will go to sleep is the last thing in the morning. And someone will have two hours of sleep, and he laughs, he howls, he rolls over, he's crumbling. <laughs> when he sees, you know, someone's HRV at like 19, you know, their resting heart rate at like 70, and two hours of sleep. It's just incredible. I like that your seven-year-old has identified what bad data looks like on Whoop. He's a smart kid, but it's a... No, it's, I'm just totally in love with Whoop. I mean, every day I have some kind of conversation. I'm always on calls like this, my Zoom calls. I've actually figured out how to hold my iPhone uh, so that the Whoop will actually show up in the window. I can tell people what my, uh, my score is for the day. And, you know, the thing, the thing you've really brought to the world, Will, more than anybody else is, you know, we all kind of knew it is anyone over the age of 25. They all do the same workout every single day. They go out, they stay out, they're stale. They can't figure it out. They think they're getting old. They start to hurt. They go to the orthopedic surgeon. And they don't realize that the game is it's really, really hard and then really, really, really easy. Totally. 
totally so fundamental that idea of of putting completely different strains on your body most people are doing a 10 or a 12 every day and they should be doing an 18 and they should be doing an eight you know that's what you taught the world will is that is that you need to have you know you want to you want to do that 18 or 21 and again the scale goes up to 21 in an 18 or 21 but you can't do that unless you're recovered enough and you don't know you're recovered unless you have a whoop. you just don't know and i have looked at all the other devices and you know i, I measure hrv in my garbage as an example it's it's junk i mean it's just, it's just not a very good measurement you know you measure it right in the middle of deep sleep you grab it out and i've looked at it against you know laboratory quality equipment so you're getting a very very high quality hrv and that means people can rely on it in terms of measuring you know the longer term biological age the shorter term recovery so you know what you, what, you know your, your legacy is that you've finally been able to show people and demonstrate them that if they're fully recovered and they're itchy and they just feel like they haven't worked out and you go out and you crush it that's where you win you know jesse diggins she and kiki randall won the first ever gold medal in cross-country skiing for the united states and when you ask jesse how she she won she said i rested which is interesting right? isn't that amazing isn't it yeah, yeah. i rested so i mean she did incredible crushing workouts you know I'm, I'm in our local cross-country skiing year team here and competing for a team of the world championships in norway last year and, uh, you know, we all go on to the same thing every day. We feel tired and old. And the fact of the matter is you're not old. You're just not recovered. I love that. Well, one thing you do really well in the book is you talk about different age groups and you talk about some of the things to focus on from a fitness standpoint or a health standpoint. So let's do this. Let's go through a few different age groups and I'm going to say the age group and you give me like two things or three things that someone should worry about. Okay. If you're, so if you're in your twenties, what do you need to worry about? Biggest thing you have to worry about, Will, in your 20s. And I have a 25-year-old who you know. Aiden yes, Richard, Hayden's not. terrific. So what you're doing is you see your body as an expendable commodity. And chances are, I'm going to outscore you. You should be angry about that. You should get a wound and you should get to work. And the reason is you really think you can burn up your body, you know, before Corona, you're on planes all the time. You're up all night. You're drinking. You're partying. You're not exercising. And you know, if you look at the millennial, the millennial and the centennial, they have much more obesity and diabetes and anxiety and depression than older generations. So you may not think you're old, but your biological age is screaming up there, even in your twenties. So at twenty-five, I would say don't don't rest on what you're birth certificate says, look at your whoop score and get it together. Because now is the time in your 20s to get those lifelong patterns together. And if you start now, you're going to develop a phenomenal max CO2 and you're going to have a great life because you feel so good. You know, there was a, a runner from, from the distant past named George Sheen back in the, the heyday of the running movement. And he had a great quote, which was, first be a good animal. And I think in a day of the gig economy, when you're worried about the future and you don't have a house, you don't have enough money to get married, you know, the whole world's falling apart. We're going to this global, you know, depression. It's because we've been brought up by the media to believe that you've got to grow up and be a billionaire. You need this financial success. The fact of the matter is, if you feel great every day, if you have lived life as a great animal first, you have one. I tell everybody, you're like, if I've I had, love that so much. Be a great animal. How good yeah, is that? If you've had a great night's sleep and you've had great nutrition and a wonderful workout there, you don't need anything else. You've won. So whether you've made it to be church, chief of surgery at Harvard or, you know, you're 
you're, you know, you're riding an ambulance out in the, in the middle of Dubuque, you've won. And I always, you know, I, I, in one of my books talked about the sit class, the sitters. And so I go, okay, so yeah, you're a billionaire. What do you do? You sit in your Gulfstream, you sit in your $20 million apartment, you sit in your $150 million yacht, but I've got you beat 10 different ways to one. You can't go into ski mountaineering race. You can't go in the world championships and cross country skiing. You know, you can't do an Ironman. You can't do a marathon. But you've lost it, life, right? So keep your priorities state because you can win, win, win uh, without having to, you know, make tons of money or have all those other successes. I love that. I just think that we've been, we have been loaded up with all these terrible artificial goals by, you know, peer pressure and, and going to places like Greenwich and very expensive Fifth Avenue apartments. And the fact of the matter is, the good news and the bad news is, he was a millennial and with this second huge financial debacle within, you know, 15 years or so, it's true. You know, you may not do as well as your parents or grandparents have, but if you're first grade animal, you feel great you're biologically young, you have one. And then be artistic, find great stuff, you know, reinvent yourself. Every five years, I've taken the complete career course on graphic design, so I can do graphic design. Taking the complete career course on deep learning, I now just did a whole, I'm uh, doing a, a four hour series uh, for Google uh, on you know how to do machine learning and deep learning and whatnot. Uh, I've, I've just done this book. I've done a whole wonderful series. I've collaborated with Massachusetts General Hospital, which. Uh, I admire is the greatest hospital that's ever been. They actually call it the world's greatest hospital. And so I've collaborated with them on a series of videos for uh, for coronavirus. So I just think, you know, the joy in life is continually reinventing yourself. And this gig environment is, it's a curse in the sense that you're not going to have a pension. You have to work your whole life probably. But it's also a joy in that you can decide to do anything. You can be a video, you can be a photographer, you can be a video artist, you can be a director. You know, you can... Uh, you can be, be a doctor and you can learn so much online and be able to pump this up, but you have to be able to prepare to do this. So I have this advanced, uh, unpublishable age, you know, get up every day and I do a whole series of courses. You know, I reinvented myself in terms of deep learning and machine learning. Uh, so it really, you know, it makes life a great joy. And I, I really have to, I have to compliment you because you have given the world a great gift, Will, with Woo, because it really does probably improve somebody's overall quality of life, their biological age, their longevity, and how they feel more than, than anything in recent history. That's the kill cell. Wow, thank you. Well, look, you have a you know, you have a positive attitude towards life that's really infectious and really, really healthy. And it's no surprise you've been so successful throughout your entire life and also been able to be so successful in a number of different areas because you take that attitude of I can learn something new. I can reinvent myself. I can go deep on anything. Uh, and I think that's just, it's such a healthy, healthy attitude. Now, if we go back for a second, I mean, obviously everything you just talked about applies to really all ages, but I like it as a framework for someone in their 20s who's you know trying to figure it out. How do you start thinking a little differently about your body in your 30s, maybe even early 40s? I remember when I hit 30 and I thought, oh my God, is this as old as anybody could ever possibly get? I mean, I felt like I was aging. So what you have is you have this progression now. So now you're really aiming, you've had all these risk factors, the risk factors are developing. So maybe you had a little gastric reflux, you took a few times to do much about it. Your blood pressure's keeping up, your pulse is starting to increase, creep up. Um, you know, you're not feeling that great, you're starting to put a little punch on, your workouts aren't as good. 
you aim towards 40, when you hit 40, it really is like, oh my God, the alarms go off. You're like at a fire station, the alarms go off. <laughs> and you, you think life is over. And as somebody who's been through all those milestones, at 72, I feel healthier than any, any 25 or 35 or 45-year-old that I know. So as you go through your 30s, you have to realize that, you know, this, this is, you, you're not going to fall. You don't have to fall apart. You know, I, I was in a race last year with a 42-year-old who still wins the Vasa Lopez, which is the longest ski race in the world, or biggest longest, 85 kilometers, which I've done, actually. And he wins this in a record time in his early 40s. His max VO2 has not changed since wow. his early 20s. There are Olympic athletes who still win Olympic medals in their late 30s, in their early 40s. So, you know, life is not over. But remember, you're in a progression where – you know, now you're going to translate all those risk factors in the beginning parts of disease. You're going to start to feel things. You're going to see people drop early. You're going to see people who have, you know, due to family history, very early heart attacks. It's going to be very, very scary for you. So I think that, you know, the 30s are where you really want to start to put together a program. You want a regular program of athletics. And the other thing I love about Whoopi is a lot of people, they look at exercise as onerous and, oh, my God, I don't have to do this. And this is terrible. And it's like this lifelong sentence. And with Woo, because it delivers you to a state where you feel so good, you want to go out and kill it, you want to crush yourself, that it changes the face of exercise because you, you can have those incredible easy days. You can have those, those rest days so you really feel great all the time. So I think it's transformative. And, uh, you know, I would make certain you certainly have picked up some kind of life sport. You know, one of the great tragedies, I think, in America is, you know, is we turn so many kids off to sport. We use them as a feeder system for professional sports. If your kid goes into peewee football, there's a one in 5,000 chance they're going to make it in the NFL. I mean, how many destroyed knees and, <laughs> and brains do you have, you know, making your way through there? We really should, you know. And I talk about this in the book for the sort of, you know, 1 to 12, have a motor education where you – you have a complete motor inventory, learning all these wonderful things you can do with your body. But we need to teach kids life sports. And so, you know, as you're in your 30s, you know, you'll be continuing squash, of course, because you're, you know, you're such a, a champion. And hopefully your, your knees won't go out because you're, you're, you know, you're. you're but you give me a hard time for playing squash because you say it's got too much impact, right? So what, what if you could paint the perfect picture of sports that I should pick up now? or even that we should be teaching our, you know, 10 year olds, what are, you know, this motor inventory, what, 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 what is the, the Bob are not program? So as youth, that is, you know, from two, two or sort of 12, you don't want to drive your kids in the ground. Like I have a seven year old, so, you know, we don't, we don't push it. We don't have to, you have to run so far. I have to run so fast. None of that. It's all about acquiring enough skills that as life goes on, you could pick up anything. You could pick up ski lifts and you jump out of here, like you fly to fight a plane. So it's that inventory. It's going to be some gymnastic skills, which I think are very good. It's going to be some trampoline skills. It's going to be able to you know, run around cones and whatnot. The interesting thing is, is when they looked at ski racers at the best ski academy in America, they found that many of them were motor idiots in the sense that they were very good at skiing, but they were kind of uncoordinated when they came to walking across a tightrope or came to like you know jumping between different platforms. They, they couldn't do it very well. So, you know, your kids, you really want to give them that complete motor education. For instance, I coach soccer. I coach first grade soccer. And there are a lot of kids who are intimidated. You know, sports, unfortunately, is the rich get richer. You have some kid who's naturally talented as far as a soccer coach, and they do very well. And the other kids are discouraged. They don't in the game. They fall by the wayside. They want to play goalie. So what I do is I say, we're going to do drills. We'll do like the Marioni drill. And I'll have them come at me. 
and they won't get it in the first one. But I make them do it, not make them, I encourage them to do it until I've done it five or six times. Every one of those kids learns the skill. Then I go into the game with them, and the lesser kids I take, I get them the ball, I drive them through, I feed them some little bit of success. So I think it's up to us not to use sport as a way of being able to, to uh, select out the elite. We need to, to get everybody up to speed on sport. Then you were saying, you know, so for 30s and 40s, what do you want to do? The bottom line, you know, for someone like yourself is that you do want to have that aerobic sport. Now, you know, you live in Boston, so you can row, right? You've got the Charles River right there. I'd encourage you to stand up paddle, and I will bring a board down to you. Well, we're due for that. You're going to take me out there because I want to learn from the world champ. And I know you're going to kick my ass and this is, this will kind of inspire me to actually get good at it. Cause I'll be like, I can't be losing to this guy. The, uh, you know, cycling is great. The hill climbing, the cross country skiing, any of those sports that have. And, but so explain, explain why running in your opinion is not as good. So the way to think of it is you have this pump your heart and you want to put the maximum amount of blood through it. So you go, okay, I'm going to run. So it's kind of a calf sport. You may use some quads and hips and whatnot, obviously. But, you know, you're, when you look at overall maximum consumptive, consumption, maximum oxygen consumption, 96 is the cross-country skier. Uh, you know, you have some cyclists in there, some runners, but you're really dropping into the 70s for most runners, marathon runners and cyclists. Why? Because, you know, you're not using your delts and your quads and your lats and your abdominal muscles to max, right? You're just not. So you're not able to develop that. And while I love running for the right person, look, you know, you, you have a life, very athletic frame. And so you may go playing your whole, playing squash your whole life, running your whole life, never have an injury and do very well. But what happens is that the real thing that goes with aging is elasticity. When you land when you're running or you land when you're trying to get a squash up, you know, you don't have that elastic platform. The elasticity goes away. And so you're deadening that elasticity with running. So the fact of the matter is, and I've talked to a bunch of runners in their late 30s and early 40s, and what happens is they just are going slower. Not necessarily because of their heart-lung package, because their skiers are still winning Olympic medals at that age, but it's because they become less elastic. So if you can't drive your heart-lung package because you are getting slower, you need to shift sports. Doesn't mean you can't run some, but find something that's going to deliver elasticity back into your system. So for you in squash, I would look at how can I drive my heart and lung system so I can do it with a bike, I can do it with a, a ski mountaineering, which I'm going to get you into this winter. You We're going to do it. We're going to do it. I'm committed. Stand up paddling. You could do all of those, and then you're developing this huge heart lung reserve for when you're playing squash. And you're also developing some elasticity, you're putting elasticity back in your legs. The nice thing about cycling, if you're doing a very, very high cadence, like 95 or 100, is you're building elasticity back into your system. So you feel more elastic rather than the deadening out. So I just say to, you know, I say to athletes, look, you know, you've got to have a transition sport. You have this great heart lung package that's allowed you to run marathons and triathlons and whatnot, but you're kind of losing the muscular component there. So find something you can translate into. What happens, unfortunately, is because people don't have the motor learning. You know, people take up running later as almost like a default sport, right? It's a throw. It's a bit of a throwaway hobby. I mean, no offense to our listeners. I'm a runner and like, you know, I find I'm doing it most of the time almost as a meditation. It's like I'm thinking about other things. It's less about the activity itself. No, I mean, 
and I was a serious run. I did a two thirty eight marathon and ten, you know, a, a, a one hour, a ten mile. Did, I did all those things. Did the Ironman until I completely burned my hips out. So that when they operated on this, so there wasn't there hasn't been any cartilage in there for years. It looks like <laughs> polished marble inside. So the tragedy is because so many runners, like I'm a default runner. When I was in high school, I couldn't do anything. When I was at summer camp, they used to put me out in left field with two other left fielders just in case the ball ever came my direction because they wouldn't want me to try to catch it, right? And so I, interesting, was kind of a default athlete. I was not very good at skill sports, largely because I wasn't good early on. I kind of get shunted aside, you know, it's kind of an awkward little kid. And then I get my teens, and I'll never forget, I met an exercise physiologist at age 15. Uh, I think his name was Everett. And he had gone to Northeastern, which always had a very good reputation in exercise physiology. He was like, Bob, look, don't worry about not being a great football player or, uh, you know, baseball player. Sure, you're not going to get girls, but don't worry about that. He said, you are an endurance athlete. And that afternoon, <laughs> I went out. I think I, I swam a mile. I went out. I ran 10 miles. And then I went out. I biked 50 miles. He just gave me this such passion because he said, you're going to be good at a sport. My first book ever was called Sports Selection. And it said every one of us has a sport that we'd be very, very good at. But as I was saying, the tragedy is, you know, the runner didn't do well, didn't pick up the motor package, doesn't have an agility. So like, uh, you know, my my significant other, I try to get into cross-country skiing. She does a little bit of a phenomenal runner, you know, national class runner. But, you know, because she doesn't have that, she can we say this, but, you know, that whole kind of skill package. She, she's not as willing to adapt. And this happens with runners. And you have to believe that through motor learning, you can do better. One of the, the sections of the book I have is on motor learning. And it's interesting. You know, Howard, Gard, uh, Howard Gardner at Harvard School of uh, Education had the seven different kinds of intelligence. So we have the intellectual intelligence. But we have this kinesthetic intelligence. And it's a real intelligence. You know, you're such an admirer. And I love hearing you on the broadcast. I mean, you have such an admiration, you know, for the professional hockey player you know, soccer player or football player, you know, is that, is that they're a marvel to look at because they do have this tremendous intelligence. And if you understand motor learning theory, with motor learning theory, it's like learning language. Uh, you know, like uh, if you're learning Arabic, you go, you, you read an atha, you know, you'd like to go. And you have to think, you go through everything, it's, and it takes your whole brain to come up with every word. Well, what happens over time is that it then kind of comes condensing, right? So it becomes much shorter and much more, it becomes automatic. So what I emphasize, for instance, with stand-up surfing, which is a great example, is you go out and you're learn how to bat. Where do you put it? What's the drill? What kind of angle do you put it in? How do you use your hips? It's a wonderful kind of overall curriculum as you think about every different component of your body. As you pick up these new sports, you become a more and more skilled motor learner. So now when it becomes fully automatic, you've taken all those little pieces there and they've come into a motor program and now you're a skilled athlete. But I'm a very much a believer in building athletes rather than just having someone who's a naturally skilled athlete. You know, you may not win the gold medal or you not may not become, you know, Tom Brady. But you know, you can you can be a very good athlete. You could win at your sport. You could pick a new sport and you could win at least regional contests in your sport by understanding that uh, this is not just a gift to the people learn it. And the best example of this was well during World War II they looked at training army pilots. 
So the guys who got it were the natural pilots, were the guys that died. Why? Because it wasn't, they had no reinforcement. It was the guys who had to learn and made mistakes. You want to make mistakes. I can remember, like with Arabic, I, I was in Khartoum once, and I was talking about, you know, the, the car here, the truck hit something. You know, Asafina, Yatasadam. He goes, no, 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 no. You must double the Ds. Yatasadam. Because you have, you know, the second verb class in Arabic, but you double, double that. So I will always remember that. And I always tell people with language and with sport, make the mistakes and get corrected. Because it's the error correction that allows you to learn. You know, so take lessons, become well, a learner. I actually saw this. I saw this at, uh, as an undergrad at Harvard. And I think it's a huge problem with top ranking institutions in general, which is that you have these students that are incredibly brilliant, but also incredibly fragile. And it's because they want to get A's in everything. And by the way, they got into a school like Harvard or fill in the blank, great place, because they got a lot of straight A's and they got a lot of check marks and they got a lot of accolades, but it's also now made them incredibly risk averse and in turn fragile. And what I found so rewarding about being a college athlete, and I think it's an, an advantage that athletes have over um, non-athletes or people who just aren't in that system is an athlete is taught to use failure as a point of learning, as a point of process for improvement. You know, if I hit a bad drop shot and I put it in the tin, the next thing I'm doing is hitting 100 drop shots off a ball machine to figure out how to hit it properly, right? And that process, if I hadn't had that sort of ingrained in my in my life, you know, up to my early 20s, I don't know if I would have felt comfortable starting a business where, by the way, the, the probability is failure, you know? So for me, at least, it's been incredibly rewarding to have what you're describing in, in this backdrop uh, as part of my life, because I think you have to, you have to embrace that. You have to embrace the, the possibility of failure. Obviously, you don't want to fail, but you have to embrace it. Athletics is such a wonderful surrogate all the way through, because I always tell people, look, at you know, so maybe things aren't going well today in some aspect of your life, socially, marriage, partner, uh, business, uh, your job, whatever it is, but you could have an athletic success today. And so with all the contests that I've done, I, mean, I think about doing, you know, a hundred mile cross country skiers. I, I led a team one year that won the Canadian ski marathon, actually two years, won the Canadian ski marathon. So you start out in, you know, a foot and a half of deep snow, doing a hundred miles over two days, 50 miles a day, you know, and you fall, you break a ski, you break a pole, and you're injured, you're bleeding, you have a headache. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the whole thing is crazy. So it's such a great surrogate for life because, you know, life is not this smooth path. You know, you, you read about the most successful author today, like 107 people reject his books. People reject, reject, reject. You know, the Star Wars, the Star Wars script was rejected 142 times. No. I, I always loved that. Right. George, George Lucas was rejected 142 times. Is that crazy? I love that. I mean, imagine if he didn't go up to bat for the 143rd time. Just the whole Star Wars thing would never have existed. I mean, how disappointing. How, how, how did you know this was going to work out? When you put Whoop together, I mean, it really was, it was crazy because you're going up thinking you already have these people out there who's got hundreds of millions of devices, so, you know, huge budgets and whatnot. Well, out. I would say from a raising capital standpoint, I've definitely been rejected more than 142 times. That's sort of the nature of the beast. But the thing I've always, I've always reminded myself is 
it's sort of a what the hell do they know because you know they'll a venture capitalist the name of the game and, and i'm sure you've done this as well the name of the game is you pick 10 companies and you hope two of them are successful it's not like they've got that high of a batting average to begin with <laughs> on the things they pick okay now let's go back we've now um you've saved 30 year olds and 40 year olds boom 50 i'm looking at 60 how do i rectify my life so at age 50, you're starting to see real disease. And you, you may, if you're very unlucky, have your first heart attack. Uh, if you had GERD, now you may be starting to get some asthma from that. So it's the advent of real disease. And you're really starting to you know, see mortality now because you're going to see your first friends die, unfortunately. Uh, and certainly in this, in this COVID era, you may have seen several you know, acquaintances or people die in their 50s and 60s. It's starting to take its hold there. Certainly with COVID, you know that it's, as you get it, getting your 50s, 60s, and 70s, the death rate, you know, continues to go up. So that's the point where you really want to, you know, one important part of the book is I have a chapter called Battle. And it uses George Clooney's quote, which is that uh, aging is not for the faint of heart. Uh, <laughs> okay, these chronic diseases, they're, they're not a simple matter of you just take a pill for cholesterol or a pill for, you know, your gastric reflux or whatnot. It's hard. You know, I've, I've got a bunch of bad things go wrong and you've got to battle and you have to be aggressive just, just like an athletic contest you could harass them to the ground so what i would say is that you know in your 50s you're starting to see the onset of diseases that are eventually going to kill you or eventually cause you to age much faster than you should and they're the big ones they're, they're high blood pressure they're asthma they're chronic obstructive pulmonary disease they're heart disease they're uh, arthritis and so I unfortunately went through my, my 50s with a terrible hip pain. I couldn't walk a block by the time I was through. I just couldn't walk a block. And wow. I delayed, delayed getting the operation. But then I had, you know, both, both of my hips redone. Then I suddenly went big, back to me to kidding. I, I vowed I would never do less than 90 minutes uh, exercise any day uh, now that I had this kind of gift back. So I would just say that, you know, that when I look at people in their 70s and 80s, They've accumulated all these diseases. And you know what happens is they don't die so much as they kind of give up. They go, I've had it. I'm sick of living. I all these things going wrong with me. And I've been part of a chapter of the book is what I would have looked like back in 1918. In 1918, I would have been in a wheelchair on an early oxygen, unable to see, right? I'm going to think, I'm going to keep food down, constantly miserable, terrible pain. And I probably wouldn't have lived out of my 50s. And through the miracle of modern science, you know, I've got, I've got cataracts replaced, I've got my hips replaced, I've had a whole bunch of operations, you know, clean myself up inside and now feel like I'm, you know, physio physiologically and medically perfect. So just realize that those diseases are now starting to really show themselves in your 50s and 60s uh, that are, are going to kill you or slow you down or make you give up. So be incredibly aggressive. It's like a car. In other words, your tires are worn, your transmission's worn, you know, your cylinders are starting to go, you know, the, the rings of them, you know, are, are leaking, it's starting to belch exhaust. So you're like a car and you have all these different systems and all of these different systems are going to start to go bad. And so you want to focus on them and make sure that your heart's 100%. You know, you're using your wall to have those green days, to go out and have the big workout, your cholesterol, your inflammation are where they should be. You're seeing a cardiologist early on to look at those risk factors, you know, your, your lungs, your intestinal system. So it is a battle. The chapter really goes into great detail on how do you want to win that battle so you're not starting to accumulate those chronic diseases that will be your demise over time. 
Well, I love it. I love the book. I've read a, a number of your books. And in my opinion, this one is the best in part because I, I love how much it's plugging uh, heart rate variability and uh, and whoop and whoop is, a, is a, big, a big component of this book. I highly recommend it to everyone listening. Where can people uh, find the book? Uh, should be a bookstore. It's certainly on Amazon. Um, and so uh, it's available now. I love it. Dr. Bob, it's been a pleasure having you on. We look forward to uh, having you back soon. I hope you'll be back soon. I love it. Thank you to Dr. Bob for coming on the Whoop podcast. You can check out his book, Flip the Youth Switch, online. We copied that in the show notes. It's on Amazon and everywhere else. You can use the code Will Ahmed, W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D, to get 15% off. And please follow us on social, at Whoop, at Will Ahmed, Instagram, Twitter, and other social media platforms. Stay healthy, everyone. Stay in the green and keep your respiratory rate flat.